Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Today we look at Good Friday, and we, you know, we call it Good Friday. That's always been troublesome for me because Friday is a day of death. It's a day of execution. It's it's dark. It's just it's denial. It's betrayal. It's every bad thing that we talk about when we talk about the death of Jesus. It all happens on that. Friday. Some would say, oh no, Brett, that, you know, Good Friday is a great day for us. Well, I get that. I get that, but still, I, the fact that my sin is in any way responsible for that day, and it is, and your, your sin is responsible for what happened on that day, it just, it's, it's, just it's, a, it's a horrible, it just doesn't look good to me. That day doesn't, no part of it looks good to me. It looks dark, it looks somber. On that day, at least, there was no hope. The disciples, they don't know what we know. They don't recognize that Jesus had to do that. And I've said this before, you know, if, had, had you talked, maybe I'll probably say this next week because we're going to look at, at day six, which is the, the day between the crucifixion and the resurrection. But can you imagine being a disciple and everything that you had your hopes pinned on and it's all gone? They didn't understand. We've talked about that. We're going to see it this morning. They, they didn't understand. And now Jesus has been crucified and he's gone and this, the plan's not going the way we thought it was going to go. Had you asked the disciples on Saturday or Friday night, was the death of Jesus a good thing or a bad thing? They would have said, oh, it's horrible. It's, so, it's the worst thing ever. But if you'd talked to the disciples six months after the crucifixion, what would they have said? Oh, it's magnificent. You know, what a, what a great thing for us. We've been saved. I want to talk about that day because... While it was a day of great suffering, it was also a great day of significance. Good Friday was for you and for me uh, a day where Jesus did some very significant things on the cross. If you read the Gospels, you will see that Jesus predicted his death many times. In fact, about 11 times Jesus predicts his death, and sometimes he does it with pretty nice detail. It is as if Jesus is trying to say to the disciples, listen guys, this season that we're in where we're hanging out together and you're seeing me do these miracles and raise people and heal people and walk on water and all these things that I'm doing, you know, th this season is coming to an end. This isn't going to go on forever. These are very special moments for you and they're about to disappear. I want to look at one of those accounts today where Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples. This is Luke chapter 18, verse 31. I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He will be handed over to the Romans and he will be mocked, treated shamefully and spit upon. They will flog him with a whip and kill him but on the third day he will rise again. Very specific. And you look at 34 and it's clear that they just aren't getting it. They had heard what Jesus was saying, but it's just not making a connection in their minds. They, they just, they can't wrap their head around it. And, and it's as if Jesus is saying, listen, you got to catch this. you got to understand what's happening. Verse 34, but they didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words was hidden from them. And they failed to grasp what he was talking about. My prayer this week for you and for me is that we would leave this place understanding the significance of Good Friday 
for us. This isn't just an event in Scripture. This isn't just a journey to the cross. This isn't just some story that we talk about. Good Friday was for you, and it was for me. So I I want us to look at four significant moments from Good Friday. The first one is Jesus encountered a trial. He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's there, and Judas has done his work and done his betrayal, and now these men come and arrest Jesus, apprehend him in the middle of his praying, and he's taken to the high priest, and he will now endure some trials. Three religious and three civil, all of them illegal. While they're doing these trials in the middle of the night against all of the rules, The beauty of these trials is that while they were trying to pin something on Jesus, he was so innocent, so without sin, that they couldn't come up with a charge that would stick. They're bringing people in, they're making stuff up, and they just could not make it happen. A few days earlier, some of the people that had worshipped Jesus as he walked in in the triumphal entry, and they're waving palm branches and singing their hallelujahs and hosannas, Some of those same people who participated in the praise at the beginning of the week, by the end of the week, are the ones that are saying, crucify him. It's it's not unlike the culture that we live in today. We have heard it called cancel culture. One day you're hot, you're riding high, everything's good. And the next you've done something or said something that's offensive, which isn't hard to do anymore. And... It all goes south. And somebody says something that, that offends somebody, and now we're going to forget them. We're going to cancel them. They're not in the limelight anymore. And, and you know, it's, it can be a little frustrating because you can watch sometimes where some people seem to get 40 and 50 and 60 second chances, and some people don't get, even get one. And that's kind of the culture that we live in. And so they were trying to do that to Jesus. They were basically trying to cancel Jesus. Matthew 26, verse 59, the chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin We're looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. And I love verse 60, but they did not find any. Though many false witnesses came forward, my Savior was clean. My Savior was righteous. My Savior was perfect. They could not find one thing to make stick on Jesus. And then you see these verses, 63 and 64. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God, And Jesus said, you have said so. What is the significance of the trial of Jesus? I think it's this. I think Jesus was accused so that you and I could go free. We would not have to stand up to what Jesus went through. Come on now, that's good news. The second thing that happened is this. Jesus endured a crucifixion. That's the bad part. That's what makes me call this a horrible day we talk about this a lot at cross lane because i don't ever want us to forget i don't want us to slip up and let this get away from our minds i i usually when i talk about the cross and the crucifixion we'll go into some detail and i know it makes a few of us a little queasy but i i I really i buck against people that look at the crucifixion and think about the crucifixion and are not moved by it that think it was no big deal I get angry when I talk to some 
dude with muscles, you know, and he's talking about these wimpy men that follow Jesus, and they say things like, I don't need a crutch like that, and I don't, you know, go to, they make fun of men who go to church, make fun of men who pray, make fun of men who teach at church, or to have some leadership role at church. And maybe you go to work and you're one of those guys that you kind of don't want anybody to know about your faith because if they find out, they're going to make fun of you. I was with the, the men at the men's retreat last weekend and I was given the uh, assignment, my, my talk assignment was, are you man enough to follow Jesus? And I basically told them that all these guys that act like they're tough guys that want to make fun of men who go to church and men who, who follow Jesus and who name the name of Jesus and talk about Jesus. And there are these guys that, that you know, they talk about Jesus like he was a sissy and a wimp. And, and who would do that? Who would want to be around that? Let me just tell you, those guys, if they had been faced with what Jesus was faced with walking into Jerusalem, Jesus knowing that on Friday they're going to crucify him, if you had told any of the men who would make fun of you for going to church, yeah, let's see if you'll walk into Jerusalem when, you, when at the end of the week they're going to pin you to a cross and whip you. None of those guys would go to Jerusalem. They would all turn and run. And so it aggravates me, when, when, especially when men uh, want to put down other men who follow Jesus. Listen, following Jesus is the hardest thing I've ever tried to do in my life. And if you're trying to follow Christ, you are not a wimp. You, you've undertaken something that is incredibly difficult. And only people who have tried to do it know how hard it is. Jesus marched right into Jerusalem knowing everything that waited for him. On this day, he would be chained to a post and given 39 lashes. And you might say, well, Brett, what's the big deal? I mean, come on. Really? Is it that bad? Yeah. It was that bad. They stripped him naked, stretched his arms so that his back was completely exposed, took a cat of nine tails, which is a, an apparatus that has leather thongs. They would soak that leather in water to make it sticky so that when they hit you with it with the the bone shards and the pottery shards attached to the ends designed to rip your flesh open the the thongs of the leather would wrap around your skin and then they would pull and after 39 lashes your back is nothing but blood and ripped up flesh most men died on the whipping post they they bled to death this was a horrible Horrible punishment, blood loss, mind-numbing pain, a crowd that is jeering every slap, every stroke, laughing at your suffering, calling you names, enjoying the process of you being ripped apart. This is the day that they fitted Jesus with a crown of thorns on a head that probably already is pounding because they had blindfolded Jesus and smacked him and punched him and made fun and said, you know, if you're the son of God, tell us who hit you. <laughs> and then they pushed that crown of thorns down on his head, the head being the most vascular part of your whole body and blood would flow down just making things even worse. Can you imagine going through something like that they placed a 
purple robe on his back. Now this back has been opened up. It's bleeding profusely. This back, you wouldn't even recognize this as a man's back at this point. And they, they put this heavy purple robe on him to mock him as some kind of king. He'd been given a crossbeam somewhere between 90 and 120, 130 pounds. It would be the piece of wood that they would spike his wrists to, and they tell him, carry this out of the city. That's about a half-mile walk, and as you know, he doesn't make it that far. He, he's so worn out. He's so beaten. He's so mistreated. I say this often. I say this just about every time I talk about the cross, but it, it needs to be said, the Romans did not invent crucifixion, but they perfected it as a form of torture. Uh, one of the things about the cross is, is you know, we, because of the movies and because of art, we kind of have it in our head that the cross was lofty, that it was high, that it was up high. But that probably is not true. Most scholars think that the cross was fairly close to the ground. One of the reasons is they wanted you to be able to walk up and look the accused in the eye. They wanted you to look right at them and make fun. If you wanted to spit on them, you go right ahead. Some of them probably got hit. So they, they wanted this humiliation part of crucifixion. They also wanted the torture part of it because when you're going through the agonizing pain of a crucifixion and you're only three or four inches off the ground, you can see the ground and it offers all the relief you can imagine, but you can't get there as you gasp for breath after breath. Crucifixion wasn't just about death, it was about humiliation. And now his blood-soaked back has melded with this robe and suddenly they rip that robe off of Jesus. And again, he is naked and they wanted to humiliate him. They wanted to break him. It was a horrible day. But I want to show you what the Isaiah, prophet Isaiah had to say and what he saw in this day 800 years before it happened. Not only did he see it, he explains it. And I've been trying to work on this as a memory verse for me. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that was upon him brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. What a horrible picture. What a beautiful result. Isaiah said the crucifixion had to happen in order for us to be healed in order for us to be set free, in order for us to have our sins forgiven, in order for us to have peace. And the cross gives us that. The cross gives us the forgiveness and the healing and the freedom and the peace that we need for our life. Crucifixion qualified Jesus. You say, Brett, why in the world do, do, does Jesus need to be qualified for anything? Well, it qualified him with us. He was humiliated in a way that sometimes we can feel humiliation. He, was, he would struggle in the same ways sometimes that we can struggle. He was broken in some of the same ways that we can be broken. Every painful step reminded him of you and me. Every painful step was a reminder to him, others, I'm doing this for others. I'm doing this out of love. When life is beating you up, Jesus can look at you and say, oh, I know all about that. I know, about, I know what it's like to be humiliated. 
I know what it's like to be betrayed, denied, canceled. I know what it's like to be falsely accused. Jesus was broken and beaten so that he could be healed and so that we could be put back together again so that he could heal us. I said, so he could be healed. No, so we could be healed. He was beaten and broken so that we could be healed. We could be put back together. When we feel the shame and we feel the, the, the dirt, the, the, just the guilt of the cross, Jesus took all that on himself so that we would never have to feel that way ever again. I'm thankful for Good Friday. Third thing that happened is he experienced death. Death had to happen. It was the ninth hour. Scripture tells us it was three in the afternoon, and Jesus would experience a physical death, the same way that you and I will experience a physical death. And death is the final blow to pain. Death is that final blow to pain and suffering for us on the earth. And then Jesus died. It meant that full payment had been rendered. It would be easy to assume that the cross killed Jesus, but that's not true. Jesus was very specific. I'm laying my life down. Nobody's killing me. Nobody's taking my life from me. I'm laying my life down. I do this willingly. I don't think he wanted us to get that wrong. Why did he do this? My favorite verse in the whole Bible, and I quote this to you all the time, but I, I quote it all the time because it's such a powerful verse. And I've told you, this is written on the floor underneath the carpet in my office. That's how much this verse means to me. It's Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, still sinners, he didn't wait for you to clean it up. He didn't wait for you to get better. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The significance of the death of Christ is to remind us just how much God loves us. If you're here today and you feel unloved and you feel dirty and you feel a distance from God, you need to be reminded that Jesus died so that you would know you are loved. He didn't have to do it. He didn't have to lay his life down. But because he did, you and I can now be called, I love this, you and I can now be called sons and daughters of God. I mean, think about that. Sons and daughters of God. That's, that's our title because of what Jesus did for us. And then the fourth significant thing is Jesus entered a tomb. You say, Brett, why is that significant? Well, because Jesus wanted to make sure that the job was done. Jesus completed the work. 1 Corinthians 15 says it like this. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Next week, we're going to look at day six. But what is significant about the tomb, I think it's possible that the significance is to remind us that, that when we think life is over, when we think that something's over, when we think there's no more hope, there's still hope. You may have some part of your life and you look at it and you think to yourself, man, this is done. This is, if there's no hope. It might be a friendship you have. It could be a marriage. It could be something at work. It might be something going on with you and one of your kids. It could be something to do with finances. And you think, man, it's just over. There's no recovering from this. We, we can't come back from this. You need to remember the tomb. Because in two weeks, we're going to come back in here and we're going to hear 
of how Jesus rose from the dead to give us hope. The tomb is not where he stayed. Your marriage does not have to stay where it is. Your friendship does not have to stay where it is. Your finances, your job. There is still hope. That's the message of Good Friday. Was it painful? Yes. Did he suffer? Yes. Was it dark? Yes. Was it bleak? Yes. But it was such a good day for us. For the time we have left, I want to focus on the cross. Jesus made seven statements from the cross. I want to talk for a minute about the, the sixth one of those. We're going to look at all of them. Just the sixth one where he says, it is finished. And Hebrews gives us a beautiful picture of the cross. It says, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Faced with all the torture that would confront him on that Friday, do you know what he saw? He saw you and he saw me. He saw beyond the pain, beyond the suffering, and now is seated in a place of honor with God. I think it's important for us to remember that the cross is not a picture of death. The cross is a statement of victory. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my soul rolled away. Have you ever sung that song? It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. It's finished. Jesus told us what his goal was for us on the cross. He said it in John 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He says, what gives me strength, what, where my focus is, what, what gets me up in the morning, what feeds me is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus was a finisher. He did not quit things halfway through like you and I do. He finished the work. This is my favorite, one of my, this is my favorite time of year. I really like summer, and, and spring just reminds me that summer is, it's, it's almost so close I can touch it. But I really love spring because in spring, March Madness happens. Amen, glory to God, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Even though my team was awful this year and is not in the tournament anymore. But I take some solace because yours aren't in there either. I mean, the, all of our brackets are messed up, are they not, right? So, but there's this thing that happens every year at March Madness, and, and it really drives home the point that I want to make. All these teams come in with all this hope. It's a new season. We're all zero and zero, and all we have to do is win six games in a row. Six of the hardest games you'll ever play in your life. You got to win them all. Lose one, go home. And something happens in a ball game, in any ball game. The goal of any game, especially of any sporting event or endeavor, is for one side or one person to exert their will on the other side. That's, that determines the winner. If a football team can exert their will on the other, you have two lines, an offensive and defensive line. Whichever one exerts their will is going to win the day. And when you come into a basketball game, that's what's happening. Two teams trying to exert their will. Who will achieve that and in every game there is a moment in the game a critical moment it's almost in every game sometimes it might be in the first half but you'll see it in just about every game there's a moment 
where a team has the choice to hold on to the rope. If you think about it in terms of a tug of war, a team is against the, they're, they're up against it. They're getting pulled all over the place. They want to let go of the rope. And the question is, will they let go of the rope? And in really good games, especially in March Madness, what you see is you see two teams go at it. And some, at some point, usually in the last half of the second half, you'll see a team and you see, you, you, you see them make a decision to either hang on or let go. And the really good games are the games when neither team lets go of the rope. We're not giving up. We're not going to stop. I watched a team last night that's very accustomed to winning. And they got dominated. And you could see it in every single player early in the game. We're beat. We're beat. This team's better than us. This team's stronger. They're, they're quicker than us. They're beating us down the floor. We're beat. And they laid down. And Jesus did not do that. Listen, we start things all the time. I'm going to start. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. And we get halfway through. Squirrel! Right? I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to read my Bible all the way through, which goes great. You know, Genesis is awesome. Exodus is fun. Leviticus is okay. And then you hit numbers. What? Dude, dude, Deuteronomy. We start books and don't finish them. We start lots of things. We're going to clean the garage. <laughs> get about halfway through and it doesn't get finished. We don't always finish those things. Jesus said, I'm going to finish it. I'm not letting go of the rope. There's not any point in this where I give up. I'm going to see this thing through. John 19, later knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, and he did not receive this so that he would be uh, uh, you know, drugged or drunken in some way to null the pain or to get away. He simply takes the drink so he can make the next statement. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Those three words, it is finished, is translated from one Greek word. The Greek word is tetelestai. Tetelestai. There are five, actually five meanings to this word. I want to go through those very quickly with you. The first one is a servant who works in a house, a worker who comes to the boss or comes to the head of the household and says, hey, I've, done, I've completed the job. The job is done. The task has been finished. The second is a judge who hears a case listens to the witnesses, makes his judgment, pronounces the final judgment, and he says, Tetelestai, the sentence has been handed down. Justice has been served. Then there's the accountant who, who looks at the books and makes sure that everything gets paid the way it's supposed to get paid. All the balances balance out. And then he's able to say, the debt has been paid in full. And then you have the, 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 the artist who's so intentional about the brush strokes and puts, puts all these strokes into this beautiful painting, and at some point, they step back and they utter the words, it is finished. This is now a work of art. And then the priest, who would offer the sacrifice and 
they would cut it and they would offer it on the altar. And after the meat had been burned and consumed, you would hear the priest say, finally, the offering has been given. And they would all use that same word, tetelestai. On the cross, Jesus is, is employing all five of these messages. The job is done, justice is served, the debt is paid, the work of art is finished, the sacrifice has been made. Tetelestai, that's what Jesus said. When you look at your life and you see the mess-ups and the, the sin, the times you didn't do it right, and the times that it, it all got jumbled and it all went sideways and you just feel like, man, I just totally messed this whole thing up. Jesus paid for it with his own flesh and his own blood. And he uttered the words, Tetelestai, it is done. And as they say in the commercial, but wait, there's more. Jesus finished the work. But the cross accomplished a few more things. So what did the cross accomplish? In the book of Mark, he shows us three specific things. I'm going to hit these real quick, and we're going to be going home. This, I'm not going to take long to do this, but Mark 15. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Let me just tell you the power of the cross. The first thing we know about the cross is it rips the curtain. The cross rips the curtain. The curtain was this beautiful drapery in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. It was off limits, except for one day a week when the, the high priest could go in there. No one else went in. That, temple, that, that curtain existed to keep ordinary people out. No one else was to go in. It was beautiful, purple and gold, 60 feet high, four inches thick, and the sole purpose of that, of that curtain is to make sure that the wrong people don't go in there. And it was once a year that the high priest would be able to go in and offer a sacrifice for the people. And great precaution was taken before this high priest went in because this was serious business. If the wrong person goes in, they're going to drop dead. This is where God is. And so he would get himself ceremonially clean. He would be as pure as he knew how to be. And they took to doing this thing because nobody wanted to go beyond this curtain. They were all afraid to go in there. So what they would do is they would tie a bell to the priest, to the high priest, so that when he went in, if he was moving around, they could hear the priest making noise. And as long as the priest was making noise, they knew he was okay. But what happens if he has a heart attack and dies? What happens if he's the wrong guy to go in there and God says, nope, you're done? And the bell stops ringing. Now what do we do? Well, they also tied a rope to his ankle. Because they weren't going in. And if the bell ever stopped ringing, the plan was we're just going to drag him out by his feet. You know, can you imagine? An entire generation of people had been told, that's not for you. You're not good enough. You can't get that close to God. Only he gets to get that close to God. You are disqualified from being close to God. You ever felt that way? I have. I bet you have too. In fact, crowd this size, I have no doubt somebody walked in here this morning, that's exactly how they feel. Why am I going in here? God does not, God's not pleased with me. God doesn't want to see me. God doesn't love me. After how I'm, what I'm doing, how I've been, Stuff I've done, <laughs> these people find out about me, I'll be canceled. No? 
We sin, we fall. Jesus paid for my failure. Jesus paid for my sins. Jesus paid for my mistakes. But it's easy for somebody to walk in here with an outcast mentality. A mentality that says, I don't belong. And there's guilt and there's shame and there's a curtain that's keeping you from God. The cross ripped the curtain. The cross paid for closeness. And because Jesus did what he did, we now have access. We are better than those guys back then. We have it better than them because we can go straight to the throne of God with the things that are bugging us. God welcomes us. He wants us to come to him. I don't care what you've done. I don't care when you did it. I don't care how many times you did it. I don't care how recently you did it. I don't care how heinous it was. You can go to God. He loves you. And he waits for you to come to him. We are better when we are close to God. And the cross paid for that closeness. That curtain that ripped that day had been hanging in the temple for 1,400 years. And God said, you are now welcome to come close to me. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, and so dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place. Not because we're great, not because we get it right, not because we're flawless, because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go. Let's go. Let's hit our knees. Let's go close to God. Let's fall on our face. Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. And our bodies have been washed with pure water. Tetelestai. Your sins are no more. They are taken away. The cross turns outcasts into family. Second thing that happened, Mark 15 Verse 39, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Encountering a cross renders conversion. This man has helped participate in the crucifixion of the Christ. He still has blood on his hands. A lot of scholars believe that this is the man who drove the spear up into Jesus' side and into his heart. This is a bad guy. Now listen, I know you've made some mistakes. I know you've done some things you're not proud of. I know you would like to have a do-over on some things. We've all got that, okay? We've all got that. I get it, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that none of you have driven a spear up into the side of Jesus while he's on the cross. And this guy has a conversion moment. Somebody needs to hear this this morning. You do not have to stay in your shame and guilt. You do not have to stay there. When you think of God and you hang your head because you think, oh, God doesn't want to hear from me. I've done too much. The cross can bring conversion. 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone. It is tetelestai. Isaiah 43, Forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. Who needs to hear that this morning? Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. This is why we do baptisms. 
Baptisms are very symbolic. What you see in a baptism, I tell people, you never physically look more like Jesus than the day you're baptized. You're dying to yourself. What do you do with a dead person? You bury a dead person. And just like Jesus, you are raised to walk in the newness of life, to follow and chase after him. That's why we go crazy when we see baptisms, because that person has died to themselves, and they now are in pursuit, full pursuit of Jesus. A death is happening. The grip of sin and shame that had somebody broken is finally, those chains are broken forever. And they are free in Jesus. And when they come up out of the water, they are a brand new creature in Jesus ready to take their first steps with God. Finally, the third thing the cross does, Mark 15, it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So evening appro- as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, Jesus is on the cross, he's, he's died. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, and he takes a risk, this guy's going to risk it went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. He took such care of the body of Christ. And the power of the cross releases us to care. It releases us to care. There is a switch that goes on when you truly encounter Jesus. There is a switch that goes on. When the Holy Spirit comes into you, there is a switch that goes on and it stops being about you. And one of the problems I have sometimes when I encounter some Christians, the way they view the Holy Spirit, they think that the Holy Spirit is all about them. What's the Holy Spirit doing in me? Look what I can do because of the Holy Spirit. My experience has been The closer I walk with the Holy Spirit, the more I'm listening to him, the more he is informing and guiding my life, the less I'm thinking about me. And I'm thinking about other people, and I'm trying to serve, and I'm trying to figure out how to be a help, not a hindrance. I'm trying to be a there-you-are kind of person, not a here-I-am kind of person. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what an encounter with the cross does. It, it It releases us to care. And maybe if we do some act of service for somebody, it may be just the thing necessary to get them over the edge, to help them to see the power of the cross in their own life and what Jesus might be able to do for them. When you experience the cross, when you have been redeemed, something happens. People ask, you know, I've heard people ask me, Brett, why are Christians so vocal about trying to get other people to be Christians? Why can't they just enjoy it themselves and shut up? Because when you've walked in and sin and shame and guilt and you've hung your head and you've said, oh, I wish I had a do-over and somebody goes to the cross for you, dies for you, forgives you, and you're free and you don't hang your head in shame anymore, but you boldly go to the throne of Christ and you can pray whatever you want to pray and you can spend as much time with God and get as close to God as you want. We want other people to know about that because when you experience that kind of freedom, it is life-changing. Life-changing. That's why we talk about it because it will change your life. Cross is amazing because it takes our sin away. It's your chance this morning. If you walked in here and 
You're all bottled up with sin and shame and you're wondering what to do with it. Here's what you do with it. You fall at the feet of Jesus. You recognize that that bloody mess on the cross is a bloody mess because of you. And you take responsibility and you say, God, forgive me. I need you. You may have never given your life to Christ. Doesn't make you tough. It makes you somebody unable to recognize a great deal when it's presented to you because I'm offering you, Jesus is offering you forgiveness of your sin forever and you never hang your head in shame again. There will be people down front this morning if you would like to do that or if you just need prayer for something, life's not going good and you just need somebody to pray with you, pray over you, we, we would love to do that with you down front. If you've never given your life to Christ and you want to do that, come let them know. I'd, be, I'd love to talk to you about that. I'll, I'll, I won't yell at you. I'll be gentle, I promise. But I'd love to have a conversation with, what it look, for, with you about what it looks like to, to walk with the Lord. Let's pray together before we go home. Father, we just, every year, it comes Easter time and we start talking about the cross. We, we talk about it all year, but with great intensity at Easter. And we've, preachers use all the words at their disposal to try to talk about how horrible and how magnificent all at the same time the cross is. It's not this beautiful thing that we adorn our homes with or that we, the chains that we put on our neck. And Lord, I know you're not offended by that. You understand what we're doing, but the real cross of Jesus was bloody and horrible and painful. But it is there that our sin goes to die. It is there that Jesus pins our sin to a cross, offering us forgiveness. And Father, for those of us who have received that, we walk out of here with our heads held high, knowing that we walk close with you. And Lord, for the one who's never experienced that, I pray that you would do what I cannot, and that is to convince them to fall on their knees and give their life to you, to be forgiven. And I pray all of this, Father, in the precious, holy, beautiful, wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.